everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Boat Hunter Chronicles podcast brought to you by Tacticam. Tacticam is by far the easiest way to begin filming your hunts. Whether it's the budget-friendly solo or the 4K 5.0, Tacticam has something for everyone. Check them out at Tacticam.com. This year we are also partnered with Spartan Forge. Spartan Forge uses military intelligence to track deer patterns using data from insurance companies, collared deer studies, and even social media. Spartan Forge uses the same techniques used to plan military operations to predict and pattern white-tailed deer. Spartan Forge. Find. Fix. Finish. You can check them out at spartanforge.ai and you can use the code bowhunter to save 25%. This week on the podcast, we talk with Warren Womack. I know I've said this before, but this has got to be one of my favorite podcasts to date. This is talking deer hunting across decades and decades. And the amount of data that Warren has collected over his um, hunting career, I mean, I'm looking at some of the data that I wrote down. I mean... Since 1968, it looks like 8,802 hours in the stand. So think about that for a second. 8,800 hours on the stand, almost 9,000 hours hunted. He says he goes on to say that he had 1,800 hunts where he didn't see a deer. Just the record keeping is incredible. Um, But then to talk to somebody who's so passionate about it and uh, is so willing to come on and, you know, tell his stories and and talk about uh, hunting uh, as it was back in the day. And then, you know, he's still hunting today. He switched over, I believe, four years ago to hunting from a saddle, uh, not for comfort, uh, but for safety. Um, Lots of different things. So, um, I'm just going to let the podcast speak for itself. Um, Unfortunately, on this one, we had some issues with uh, Warren's phone and a little bit of technical difficulty. So we kind of picked this one up um, about three or four minutes into the podcast where he's uh, talking a little bit about um, uh, as things evolved and uh, the hunting lights uh, that he's using that were... uh, just about it weighed as much as his, his tree stand. Uh, so you, you kind of miss, uh, he started hunting, um, you know, out of two by fours. And then, um, there was a guy in Louisiana who made permanent stands and then they started to make their own stands. And then he hunted out of the lock on limit. Um, and that's what he hunted with, uh, from so many years ago up until, uh, he switched over to the saddle. So, um, Unfortunately, we've missed out on uh, that little bit of the conversation, Uh, but what remains is um, an amazing podcast from an amazing man, and I'm just so glad that we got a chance to sit down and talk with Mr. Womack. Um, Real quick, I just want to give a shout out to uh, two of our new Patreons, um, Scott Janiski from Michigan, and then Mason Norman. I believe he's in Virginia. Uh, Mason, you need to get that... uh, address updated on uh, patreon so that i can send you out some uh, stickers and a swag pack and stuff like that so um the patrons patrons are the ones that directly support the show um basically it's a five dollar donation 
each month to the podcast um, goes directly towards uh, equipment, equipment for the podcast, costs associated with the podcast. Um, but then you're also eligible to win uh, some really great prizes. So basically, it's a $5 raffle ticket. And uh, this quarter's ticket is going to be a Mystery Ranch Sawtooth Pack um, with the lid. Um, it's about a $550 pack. Um, we're also giving away a set of Badlands rain gear. So uh, that's about $250 worth of uh, equipment there. So, I mean, you're in the running for some really great stuff. Uh, Basemap Pro, uh, we give away a swag pack from Basemap as well as the Basemap Pro um, mapping software, the mapping app. Uh, we love it. Uh, it's incredibly priced at uh, $30 a month. Even if you don't use our code, uh, you can use our code Chronicles. Uh, when you sign up online, it has to be online. Um, it'll save you 20%, and uh, that 20% makes it $24 for the year. Uh, all the states, tons of layers, uh, really awesome. And uh, it's $2 a month for uh, you know cost of knowing where you're at, e-scouting, not getting lost in the woods. And uh, we talk a little bit about this in the podcast with Mr. Womack, too, um, about all those years ago not getting lost and, and kind of how he did it. But um, if you're interested in signing up for Patreon, there's about 50 Patreons right now, so you got a 1 in 50 chance of winning any of those prizes uh, for 5 bucks. It helps out the show tremendously. Uh, it really does. And uh, you can check that out at patreon.com forward slash Chronicles podcast. Or you can just go to bowhunterchroniclespodcast.com and click the Patreon link. But if that's not uh, what you're here for, you're just here for the information, for the stories. Uh, this podcast has a ton of stories. I just, I just, I'm excited for you guys to hear this podcast. Um, but just go ahead and tell somebody else about the podcast. And uh, if you really like what we're doing or you really hate what we're doing, leave us a review. We have literally been stuck on. 99 reviews for like the last three months so if somebody could please just leave us one more review get us up to 100 on on itunes uh but what that does is that puts us higher in their algorithm or whatever it puts us in front of uh, a few more people but um that's kind of all i got for today thank you for listening we really do appreciate it i know you're gonna enjoy this podcast uh, it's mind blowing. This is a good one to uh, you know sit down and uh, have a cold beer, or, uh, sit and have a cup of coffee, and just kind of reflect on on what Mr. Womack is saying. Like I said, uh, it's going to kind of start out right uh, mid sentence here, um, but what transpires after that, like I said, you guys are just going to be in awe, and it's a it's a really good podcast. So thanks for listening. Enjoy the episode. And, and lice. Lice were always important. My, my partner and I, we hunted. I mean, it, it might not be much for the guys that hunt out west and everything, but down in the south, southeast, some of the places we hunted is just unheard of where we was walking again to go kill deer and pack them out. And uh, we had to, we, uh, lice was a problem, batteries and everything. We, we'd go in before daylight, using a battery before late daylight, and then hunt all day and then it, it might be 10 o'clock getting out that night if we kill some had to had to find it and field quarter it and pack it out and take pictures and video and all that and uh lice got to be terribly important 
So we got a coon hunter like, and the battery weighed about three and a half pounds. The battery weighed almost as much as my stand did. <laughs> but we got we got a three day hunt out of one charge with it. We didn't have any options or potential ways to charge it. You know where we was at. So that that light proved invaluable. Then from that we graduated to LED lights. But when they come out with LED lights, I thought I died and went to heaven. <laughs> and because I mean I use those lights. They're very important. And uh, just. And I got—I probably got the, one of the first uh, light of sight pins when I was hunting with a compound that I ever saw. I, I, I got those bow hunting magazines once they started coming out and everything, and they come out with a lighted pipe, uh, lighted sight pin. And I thought that was going to be the greatest thing in the world because a lot of my hunting and my shots come right at dark, just during the last few minutes of legal shooting time. And I ordered that thing, and it—it it was pretty good. That put me in the lighted sight pen business right there. And I was always studying this stuff and trying to learn as much as I could. And anything I thought that would offer me an advantage or help me, I would I would try it, at least try it, and then, then decide if I want to continue to use it or not. And so you now are hunting, um, well, I guess, you know, in, in the later years, you're, you've, you've changed up your equipment significantly. But when you switched over from that lock-on-limit to the saddle how old were you uh see that was that was that's my fourth year so i was 72 i guess yeah so you had yeah, 72 you had never hunted from a saddle before that they because they were out in the the early 90s right i got one in 2005 i, I got on tradgain.com and uh somebody was pumping up the tree saddle uh, the the tree suit that's what it was a tree suit and i i got interested in it they talked about it so much i had to try it but I ordered it when it came in. I was extremely disappointed with it. It was actually heavier and more bulkier than my lock-on limit was, and and a lot a lot harder to pack and fool with. Plus, the uh, tether on it was a was like a three-inch uh, band. Uh, it was a, a strap, I guess you'd call it, and it was real stiff and flexible. I tried it on a tree, and it wouldn't grip the bark. I it would slide with it, and I said, "Man, this." took me about 30 minutes to realize I didn't want anything to do with it. So I sold it to a friend after explaining to him everything that I didn't like about it. He still bought it. <laughs> <laughs> and then I think he sold it in a couple of days. He, he should have listened to me to start with, but he wanted it. So I put it on him. And I, but I gave him a disc. I gave him a good discount with it anyway. And so your, your, uh, your archery journey, how did that evolve? Well, uh, I, I started off with a, uh, with a, a Browning Explorer II recurve, and I, I killed 17 deer with it by the time that I had an opportunity to get a compound bow. And uh, I had been getting ready to make a Colorado mule deer and elk hunt in 75, and me and two of my friends were going out there. You know, drove my Bronco out there, actually, and uh, it was a long ways for a little Bronco back in. But uh, anyway, I had been getting ready for that, and I had a, a guy in, in my area, I lived outside of Baton Rouge, and he lived in Baton Rouge. And he called me, and he said, "He said, Warren, he said, I got three compound bows coming in. He said, I'm going to keep one. So-and-so wants one. He said, I want to know if you want the other one. And I had never seen one. I'd seen pictures of them in magazines and stuff, but I'd never seen one. That I said, yeah. Well, anyway, he came in three days before we were fixing to leave to go to Colorado. And the first day I, I tinkered with it and then got it tuned up the second day and shot it a little bit. I didn't bring my recurve to Colorado about the compound bow. I shot a mule deer and an elk out there with it. 
And uh, and then from there, I, I went through, I think, five different compound bows. I had that. It was a Carol Model 1200, and then I went to a, a PSC Laser Magnum, and I went to a Jennings Aerostore, and then I went to a, it's four of them, and then I went to a, a High Country Trophy Hunter, that's what it was. And then from that, by that time, it was, it was 93, the 92, 93 season had ended, and, and I was getting interested in going back to trad. I'd killed 175 deer during that period with my, with my compound bow, so I was, it was, it was, and they, all, all the deer I shoot are average 15 yards anyway. I said, you know, it'd be a lot more fun shooting with a recurve again. So I ordered a, a Damon Howard Hunter at 55 pounds from a, a mail catalog place somewhere. I don't remember where I got it from. It came in, and I, the first season with it, I killed six bucks and three does. And uh, after missing three bucks on the South Carolina hunt, <laughs> but I had made a commitment. I, I I made up my mind that I was going to dedicate myself to a recurve. Even if I didn't kill a deer that whole season, I made that commitment. I was going to stick with it. And after missing those three rack bucks in South Carolina, I was doubting my commitment big time, but it worked <laughs> out good. And then after that, I started that, after that season right there, I was working, one of my working buddies got to talk to him about my hunting. And I was taking a lot of time off to work. I was hunting a lot more than I was working. But in the construction trade, you know, I don't work for uh, I work out of hall for a different company all the time. It's not like I'm loyal to one contractor. And if they can handle me being gone, they can handle it. If they can't, I'll work for somebody else. <laughs> Just that's what my attitude back then, you know. So anyway, uh, oh, I got sidetracked. Where was I going on this? Oh, you were just talking about, uh, you know, you're getting oh, the, yeah. uh, the bowl. I got you. So so anyway, uh Working at working, co-working and everything. He uh, he said he said Warren. He said you're taking a lot of time off work. He said, do you have the very best equipment that you could possibly have to to make it worthwhile for all this? And I said, well, I got some pretty good stuff. I said I might could have a better bow. And he said, well, he said, why don't why don't you see about getting a better bow if you think it'd be better? And I said, you know, I believe I will. So I started going to these shoots that summer, and that's between the '93 and '94 season. And uh, during that summer, I was shooting a lot of different – I still have my, my Damon Howard, but I started shooting a lot of different bows. And I made my mind up I was going to get a Blackwood recurve until I shot an Acadian Woods. And Tim Mullins from Slidell, Louisiana, just, he just started making uh, these bows and stuff. And, and, in fact, my bow is so so old in the first in the market, he didn't want to have a serial number on it. <laughs> it's, just, it's just without a serial number. And uh, anyway – I shot, I shot a couple of his bows at this shoot, man. I knew that's the bow I wanted, so I called him and got him to make me one. And uh, and that's and that was started the '94 season with it. I think I killed 33 deer with it the first three years I had it. So I, and I've I've, uh, I've I've still hung with that bow. I still got it, even though he made me a new one about two years ago. But uh, anyway, that's that's pretty much. I forget what we was talking about, but I, that's the end of that story. <laughs> <laughs> And so those uh, Frank's over here uh, nodding his head. You, you sold some of those bows, I'm guessing. Oh yeah, all all you know. What was what was the brand name of the first compound you got though? It was a Carroll Model Twelve Hundred. It had a, it had four wheels on it. It had yeah, wheels oh, yeah. on the end, and then it had some uh, down on the lower part of the limbs toward the riser. Had some set of limbs there. And look, I, I was so hooked up on this recurve hunting with no let off. 
that let off really bothered me. Yeah. I, I found out I could swap those wheels and go from, uh, I think it had a, it had a, like a 40% let off or a 35. Mm-hmm. And, and I swapped those wheels and I went down to like a 20 or 25% let off. So, yeah. you know, it, it was a compound bow, but it didn't have much let off like it got <laughs> nowadays. But I liked it better, you know, but I, 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 I wasn't into holding anyway. I didn't need to hold anything. I just, you know, when the pin was right, I shot, I shot pretty quick. Yeah. yeah. That was like, well, the original Allens were only like, I think, 35% or something like that. Yeah, that might have been what it was, 35. You know? But I, I swapped it. I, I, I took about 10 or 15 pounds off of swapping those wheels out. I remember yeah. that. Really, really though, they, uh, they, they were really machines, you know, when they first came out with them, you know. They, right. They beautified oh, them yeah. a little bit later on, and, you know, when, when the industry got a little more, you know, Used to what was going on. <laughs> that that bare whitetail compound, yeah. Bo, that had to be the slowest. You, you needed four <laughs> pins to shoot out of twenty yards. I believe. <laughs> <laughs> that thing was. I never did have one, but I I, I shot with some guys that had them. They was they were awful. Yeah, those bear, the, I sold so many of those bows when I was younger. I mean, you know, I was in the in retail business at, at the time. You know when the transition was, you know, from from right. recurved compound and stuff, and it was it was unbelievable. You know when once they started making them, man. I mean, it was like you know, and and you know some of them were turds. You know, I mean they were. You know, I mean they just right. you know. But that that old bow, that uh, that whitetail, they they killed a lot of deer with them old slow things. You know, they lobbed them in there. Didn't oh they? man, they were like, <laughs> just like grenade launchers. You know, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that that uh that Carol twelve hundred they had a uh they had a, a fast boat contest at downtown Baton Rouge I forget we have some kind of archery deal going on and I I took my Carol down there and it was it it had to be sixty pounds and under they, they wouldn't let you shoot anything over sixty pounds and they shooting through a chronograph kind of thing and I won the thing I forget what I won I won a couple of little prizes for doing it but I shot a hundred and uh. I think it was a hundred and twenty, no, two hundred and five feet per second. That's what I was shooting right there, and that, won the contest. That was smoking. I had to, oh, yeah. <laughs> See, my recurve don't shoot with about one hundred seventy-five, one hundred eighty, something like that. You know, but my my first yeah. uh, compound that I ever got was a bear Alaskan, and I shot that at I think it was one hundred and eighty-six feet a second with the hunting arrow. You know, through yep. the chronograph. You know. That's, that's what you're shooting now, isn't it? Yeah, it's pretty close. <laughs> I shoot about the same, you know. Are you making fun of me, John? Yeah, come on. So you're you're able to say, okay, I, I killed, you know, 15 deer this year, 26 deer this year, 33. You know, um, let's talk a little bit about your, your record keeping because I think that that's going to blow some people's minds. Well, I didn't kill as many as you just said, but I killed. <laughs> <laughs> you know, my wife was at church one time, and and I was having a good season, and at work and everything. You know, I worked with a lot of guys, big jobs and stuff. Everybody knew I was hunting a lot and everything. And and she went to church one Sunday, and of course I was hunting. And somebody said, "Boy, we're having a great year." I heard he killed thirty nine already, and I had maybe six I'd killed up to that point. <laughs> so things get exaggerated a whole lot, but uh. But I, I have kept a lot of records. I got more records than I, I actually should have, I guess. 
But so, what was your question about him? I'm sorry. Yeah, like so. What's the, what's the process between be, behind that? You know, for for us, we talk to a lot of guys that shoot. You know, that are meticulous on you know wind direction. You know, every single hunt, and you know, where they're talking about in the years prior to having uh, on extra computers, they had walls just full of you know topo maps and 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 everything like that. But I think yours is a little bit more detailed on every single hunt and every single harvest uh maybe just simply for the length of time you've been doing it yeah well except for the first eight years i started keeping records off the get-go i had an uncle my mother's uh youngest brother she had it was it was 12 kids in family six boys and six girls and he was he was the youngest and uh and of course the youngest uh brother too but he, he was a he was a pretty good hunter you know they didn't have deer back in there like like they have nowadays and everything but he was a he was a bird shooter and a good wing shot and, and all that and he he always kept up with numbers he could tell you how many birds he flushed how many he shot we just wrote down everything and and i was getting really interested in deer hunting and he could tell and he said you need to write all this stuff down and keep up with numbers and and uh and he said take as many pictures as you possibly can and then take some more and he said, just record all this stuff. He said, you'll, you'll really enjoy it. And then I had a co-worker that uh, back then, you know, didn't have a lot of deer around here. He went to Texas every year on Texas hunt. He'd bring pictures out on the job. I looked at him, and I was really impressed with him having those pictures and what they was all about and everything. So I listened to him, and I, I started from the get-go. Now, my record keeping wasn't real uh, as detailed as it is now you know you, you, it's like anything you start off and you see ways to improve it and every year i come up with another different recording i can go back through a lot of my stuff and figure out different stats for it and everything but after the first uh let me see how many years it is right here where am i at i got my i got my guide right here <laughs> the first the first uh eight years I left a lot to be desired. I didn't keep up with how many days I hunted or how many morning hunts, how many evening hunts, uh, how many deer I'd seen, how many hunts I'm, that I didn't see a deer, or how many hours on stand. But I did keep up with the kills and, uh, and, and total hunts I'd made, you know, for six of those eight years. But after that, I started keeping all that stuff. I, I had calendars I'd write stuff on. I had, had log books I'd write stuff on. I wrote stories about all my shots. I, I got a lot more shots than I got kills. I, I missed, missed a lot of deer, you know, but I'm honest about it. And, I, and still, it's an opportunity to kill a deer, and I like to write about it. So I wrote the story on, on every shot I took, whether it was a hit, miss, kill, find, or don't find. I wrote it all down. And then and then I, I, on each kill, I would do a lot of stats and other things. But something, I got some things I can say that a lot of people – it's hunted a lot of years or a few years can't tell you but I, I can tell you except for those eight years how many days i've hunted how many morning hunts how many evening hunts the total hunts how many deer i've seen how many hunts i made that i didn't see a deer and how many hours i've been on the stand which is eight thousand eight hundred two hours not Jeez. counting this season <laughs> and, and uh so you know I, I do keep up with that and then each deer i kill I, I write down, as, and I got it one through 386. That's that's total kills. And then I got the gun kills, all my gun kills on my handwritten stuff is in, or in my computer stuff too, is all in black ink. And then bow kills all in red ink. And uh, the primitive is all in blue. 
and, and what I do, I, I write down like uh, kill number one is gun kill number one. And I got the date, I got the time, I got what it was, a buck, like it's eight point, six point, spike, doe, whatever. I got the method I was hunting, like areas, uh, oak trees, nut all oaks, water oak, persimmons, you know, whatever. I got how far the shot was, how far the travel was, and the location I was hunting as in place and state. And, that, you know, that just starts it. Then from there, I can break down and find all that. Write all other kind of stuff down. Let me thumb pages here. Get past these kills. Uh, Might take a minute, then, huh? <laughs> few, few pages there. <laughs> then I got the states I've hunted in and how many deer I killed in each state. And, and I, I, I got, I always had like a little motto. And when I was young and just getting started, my motto was whatever it takes. And that was kind of from through uh, 1982. And then and up to being about 38 years old and then and then uh from yeah and then it went from that to it takes all i have <laughs> and then sometime later it says i don't have what it takes so you know it's kind of, kind of progression right there and, and i got the methods i've killed which is hunting areas and water oaks red oaks cow oaks nut all oaks white oaks schumard oaks cherry bark oaks honey locusts uh Got a few more trails, just walking, like spot and stalk, persimmons, wheat field, hunted areas that had some big wheat fields and catch them coming in, doing food, food plots, cutovers, creek crossings, uh, soybeans, dogs. I had, I never run dogs to kill deer, but I've had wild dogs where I, where I was hunting, run deer by me, and I've killed them, and then calling and rattling. And then I got uh, I got a running total of from uh, first year 1968 all the way through saying how many deer I kill in each month and a running total like that and uh, uh, y'all still interested in hearing all this stuff I'm, I might be saying too much here. No, it's fascinating. I mean, I think we're just all like got to pick our jaws up off the ground. You know, then I got. To the... <laughs> <laughs> well, I didn't want to. I didn't want to. You know, get out of line on this stuff. But, uh, I mean, it, anyway, I got uh, the bow and gun kill location. That's all the different places I've hunted, which is 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, 23. I need to number them, don't I? 24, 25, 26, 27, 28, 36, 37, 38, 39, 40, 41. 41 different places I've killed deer. <laughs> and, and then I got the, uh, the, the season summaries where all those places that, uh, what I said before, I, let me just tell you the grand total. Now, that's not counting this season, but the 52 seasons I've made, uh, I've hunted, 2,306 deer. This is hunting deer, except for the first eight eight seasons. I don't know that. And I made 1,411 morning hunts and 1,836 evening hunts, for a total of 3,481 deer hunts. And I've seen 6,435 deer from the stand. I made 1,800 hunts. I didn't see a deer. And then 
the hours on stand is 8,802, and that's for 386 kills. <laughs> and then I got <laughs> <laughs> I got my bow hunts, and I got the year, how many hunts I made that season, how many shots I got, and how many hits, and how many I didn't find out of the hits. And then that, that's a few pages that. And then I got the uh, bow and gun kill deer. How many? How many of each each type buck it is that I've killed? I've killed uh, just example, fifteen eight points with a bow and seventeen with a gun. I got each one of each, and then I got how many bucks with a bow, and then how many does with a bow, and uh, states I hunted in. And then uh, and this is one of my favorite right here. I got each day in, in October, November, December, and January, like one through 30 or 31, I got the years that I killed deer on, on that date. And uh, it's like uh, October to, October the uh, 7th, I've killed one, two, three, four, five, six, seven different years. I've killed on that like 76, 77. 81, 89, 91, 2000, 2010, I killed a deer. Of course, it's all bow kills in October. And that, like I said before, I, I put all my bow kill stuff in red and my gun stuff in black. And I used to be, didn't gun hunt very much. I was way behind on kills on, on my gun hunting compared to bow hunting. But was any chance I had to hunt that I could hunt my bow, I would do it like a primitive weapon season. Instead of using a muzzle load or something like that, I used my bow. And uh, I just I just hunted, but now that I've aged and everything, I don't have as much confidence with my bow hunting anymore. And I I like to I like to gun hunt now. I really enjoy gun hunting more than I, I used to. So I feel like I just about killed enough with a bow. I don't need to kill no more. Well, I think the deer will probably thank you on that one. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, well, you know I just can't hunt like I used to. I I, I wish I could, but uh, at age it it. It, it's aging gravity man it really tells on you I, I still got it in my mind and my head but just my body just can't do what it used to and, and i used to work really really hard at this deer, deer hunting stuff i put a lot of time and effort into it a lot of hard work a lot of a lot of extreme pack outs <laughs> and so in that in that number one of the other things that kind of got me when i was listening to some of the other stuff from you was like in your record keeping, you know how many nights you spent in your vehicles? Yeah, I do. <laughs> I, I would take a more. I, I, I started off in a tent. And I'm going to tell you what, it didn't take long to know a tent leaves a lot to be desired. <laughs> and, and so I, 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 when I got my Bronco, I, I hunted in a club too for uh, several years there. And I had a camp for six years at one particular place. It was 42,000 acres club you know with 100 members in it but you know it was it was awesome hunting they didn't have the big bucks there and nothing like that a, a decent buck would score about 120 something like that but i had a lot of deer you know I, and you didn't see many saw a lot of does you didn't see many bucks i used to count my does i'd have to see around 35 or 40 does to for every buck i saw and uh, I, mean, I would count them does when I get up around 35. I said, "Get ready, you know, you ain't gonna see a buck fall off." And and it, and it worked too. But uh, oh, I didn't got sidetracked. Then. What was I saying? Your uh, your sleeping arrangements. 
Oh yeah, thank you. So anyway, after I left that club, I hunted. Uh, I got my. I had a Bronco, and my first year out of that club, I tried sleeping in it, and it, it, it was doable. But it, I knew it had a better way. I, on that Bronco, I'd taken fold that front passenger seat. You could fold it down and let it the back, the bottom you sit on, which kind of be sticking straight up and down. And I got me a piece of plywood, and I put across the back back there where the back seat was. I pulled the back seat out. I had a reinforced plywood across the windows from window to window. And then I take another little narrow piece of plywood and put from a from the dashboard up by the front windshield and let it go taper down and sit on that uh, seat that was folded up with a chock of wood between it to help support it because it'd belly out if I didn't. And then it went back to that other piece of plywood, and I slept there with my head up by the front windshield. And, uh, you know, it, it left a lot to be desired. So I, the next year I got got my my uh, 85 Ford pickup truck four-wheel drive with a sharp bed. And then I got a camper hoof it, and I set it up, put plywood floor in it with carpet on that. And had a real good bed frame made. I got a real good mattress to put in. I got curtains for all the windows. I had a reading light at the at the cab end of the uh, bed and then a, another cooking light or tailgate light at the other end. And, uh, man, it was comfortable. But uh, I, every time I'd spend a night in it, I would take a marks lot and, and do a tally, you know, like one, two, three, four, and then a cross deal like that. Mm-hmm. And when I when I got rid of that truck and that camper hull, I had over 1,100 marks on that thing. <laughs> and that was, for, that was over a 10-year period, I think, I had it. And so I think you've got a pretty interesting uh, time frame. Um, I want to get into your hunting style and stuff like that, but I've heard you say that you need like about four days to do a hunt. That that's to figure out mm-hmm. an area. Can you kind of explain what you're what you're talking about there? Yeah, you know, and that's that's my problem right now. You know, my wife needs me at home nowadays for the last ten years or so. I, I, I haven't been made it, going in overnight hunts or something like that. I had to. I had to make day hunts, you know, and, and boy, your success just goes down terrible. The, the biggest thing I had for success, I guess the majority uh, or the major factor was that I did daily in-season scouting. And I, when I'd go on a four-day hunt, I, I had four days I would do daily in-season scouting. I'd, I'd take a, the first day I would get there at first light. Of course, I didn't know nothing. It had been maybe three days since I've been in the area, or maybe three weeks because I jumped around a lot. And I hit the ground running right at first light, and I'm looking for high percentage hunt, most of the time on a primary feed tree. And I'm just covering as much ground as I can, as fast as I can. And I do that for two to four hours, and then I, I, I categorize what I found that I think will work according to wind direction, bedding areas, where I thought they might be coming from, and a couple other different factors which one was the best, which was second best, which was third best, if I found that many. And I would hunt the one I thought would be best that evening for an evening hunt. And then the next morning, if it was, if I didn't see any deer there, I might go back and hunt it the first two hours, or I might just start looking for another place. It depends on, on what, you know, what the situation was. And every morning of those four days, even though I'm not going to hunt a fifth day, I'm still hunting a morning hunt and I'm getting down and I'm looking, I'm searching for that perfect place to climb where I can expect a deer to come in instead of hope one comes in. And that's, that's what that was all about right there. But 
you got you just you don't you don't want to climb and hope you want to climb and expect and you got to have the sign to do it and i, I searched for the, the best most recent sign i could find and so our last podcast you know we had a guest on and we were talking about capitalizing on the hot sign and so it was more of like a rut type sign so we were talking about rubs and scrapes and things like that and uh i, I think generally speaking it, it sounds like your favorite place to hunt would be uh, a feeding area or a, a feed tree and uh, one of our our listeners had, had reached out and said you know can you have him explain the difference between like that that feed tree or that primary tree versus like on a small parcel area or, or even like a you know when you're talking about these giant 42,000 acre areas you you mean you've got room to run right right and he, he's talking about you know how would it, that, that primary feed tree or whatever differentiate you know differ from um like just the oak ridge or or something like that yeah well you know it's a lot different hunting huge areas where you can you can cover different places and different times you know and, and uh, really don't wear out a spot and then it is a small place. That's what I'm doing now. I'm hunting those small places. I'm hunting behind my house, which we got 15 acres, and I got a couple of neighbors around that I can hunt theirs too. And then I got another small place up. And then I, I so you know, I'm, I, it's just small places. They're not big, and, but I'm the only one that's hunting them. So that's a big help right there. But you can't you can't do that. You can't you'll you'll run them off if you do that too much. But hunt small place. I think the best thing to do is. After a couple of years of hunting it, you, you're going to know where your best observation places are from observation sits. You're going to find out your best places to set up. And if you don't hunt it too much, I think you can do do pretty good. It's, it's, it's just don't work as good as it does having big, huge areas where you can move around from one place. I might hunt a drainage one evening. Next morning, I might be five miles from there, you know, in the same big block of woods. And it just, and I'm not wearing them out, but that's the fact that's the fact i'm living with right now hunting a small place just like you mentioned the other thing and, but they, those deer they got preferred ways of traveling through there too you know they got flow areas and the floor areas going from point a to point b taking advantage of any kind of cover they they can whether it be thickness or elevation and they don't have to be a whole lot thicker if it's, you got why i've seen deer in wide open woods they come through and you see them and you don't see them and then you see them and then they'll disappear and you'll see them again well, they're taking advantage of any kind of cover and elevation to stay out of sight as they go through there. Once you find one of those things, it's going to be good until until something happens to change what makes it good for them. They're taking uh, use it to their advantage. And so, on those um, feed trees, though, what are what is it that you're looking for? I've heard you say that you want to find a tree that basically takes your breath away, right? Absolutely. You can't walk off from it. You, it makes you climb it instead of you making yourself climb it. And, and what I'm doing, and a lot of times I found them from blue jays, you know, just just scouting their drainage or something, going from tree to tree, checking for sign under it. And, uh, and a lot of times I hear the blue jays squawking and, and thrashing around. You go to it and they're on a hot tree and they knocking acorns out and the deer going to come to it. But what I'm looking for, I'm looking for a, a when you walk up to a tree, you set that crown as a drip line, outside crown of it, where you can get that crown and you look inside that crown where the acorns should be falling. And it's going to look totally different than it is outside that crown. And if they look the same, 
deer hadn't disturbed it because them deer come into that tree on a regular basis up to two, three. I've had a tree last two weeks before. It's just, it'd be the primary feed tree for two weeks, which is unusual. Usually they'll be, they'll be, uh, be uh, forgotten for another tree that's in the, in the prime better than that later on. But uh, I've, I've seen them, but you're looking for that, that inside that drift line, it's going to be the, the ground and leaves are going to be churned up. You're going to have deer crap on the ground. You're going to have acorns falling. Uh, you, you stand there for a minute and you don't hear an acorn fall. It might not be what you're looking for, you know, but that tree is just an acorn falling every 30 seconds or 15, 20 seconds. I call it raining acorns. And the inside the drip line is, is all uh, disturbed. The outside is not, looks untouched. They got a coon up there, a squirrel's knocking acorns out. You know, just a real active tree at the time you find it, you know. You better take advantage of it. It's telling you to hunt it. And when you're finding those, I mean, through all your record keeping and, and and everything, are you finding those trees that are more effective or where you're seeing more more deer having more successful hunts? Is there any commonalities as far as proximity to bedding or water or, you know, pinches, you know, any of those things? Does that fall into it? Or if you just find a tree that is all torn up, you don't really care what's around? That's pretty much it. I don't care. They, they'll come to it. I've seen them walk through wide open woods to get to a, a primary feed tree, and they, they want it. But what's real good for a midday hunt is the SMZs, the Streamside Management Zone. Are you familiar with those? Uh, not really, no. That's that's where the loggers, when they cut a block of timber out, they, it's, the timber flows into the creek, where there was a creek, maybe the south boundary of this unit they cut well, that, that creek is usually curves. It's not a straight line. You've got bends and curves in it and stuff like that. Well, they they draw a straight line from one curve just going straight, and they and they cut everything on the inside of that, and they leave on the outside of that line in those bends. They leave the oak trees, and they won't cut it. Let's just call it streamline, streamline side management zone. Stream, SMZ, stream management zone or something like that. But anyway, they don't cut that. And you got some of these big uh, oak trees and they're dropping. And that, the first year that cut over, it's going to be bare out there. By the time the cut over is three years old, it's going to be enough cover for deer to bed in that thing. And these deer, they have daytime bedding there, bedding and feeding areas, and nighttime bedding and feeding areas. And they travel back and forth through them in the early morning, late evening. And and but at a streamside management zone, they uh they don't have to travel. They can be laying twenty yards out in from the edge of that smz embedded up and then midday they don't they, don't, they they're gonna get up they, they have the daytime bedding and feeding areas and nighttime bedding but on those daytime bedding and feeding areas they'll get up and they'll browse where they bedded at but they won't travel to a food source but with that smz right there those oak trees and that transition line in between they, they don't mind have to walk 40 yards to feed on them oak trees in the middle of the day and then go back and lay down for the security. And if, and you find one of those that's got hot and everything, that's a good midday hot right there. And so you had mentioned that you hunt with a, with a hunting partner. One of the things that I'm curious about, you know, how, how many years did you hunt with that, that hunting partner, Lloyd? Lloyd and I started hunting together in about, I see, I met him in 70, 77, 78, and, uh, yeah, 
in probably probably the late seventies until uh, a year or two ago. We still get together and we talk and everything. But he lives up in North Louisiana now, and I and I live right out of Baton Rouge a little ways. And uh, but we still see each other. We we when we do get to hunt together now, it's up in the national forest. It's about an hour drive for me and about two and a half hours for him. And uh, but we stay in touch with each other regularly. But yeah, the first I met Lloyd on the job, I, he was a boiler maker. And I, of course, I was an electrician, and, and uh, I knew one of those boilermakers, and the boilermaker knew me, and he'd come over to visit me at our shack. And uh, he brought Lloyd with me and introduced me to him and everything. And this was in February of 77, I believe, or maybe, no, it's 78, February 78. And uh, he told me that he, the guy introduced me, I, t- I told Lloyd, I said, well, where do you live at? And he said, Rosetta, Mississippi. That was up there close to the National Forest that I hunted, and it was fixed to be turkey seeds. So I said, I said, you you turkey hunt? And he said, yeah, I kill a little, kill, I turn a little, hunt a little bit, you know. He's real modest and everything. And, and uh, so I got the question real thing. I said, well, how many have you killed? And he said, well, I don't know. He said, I killed some. And I said, well, you, you, kill, uh, you kill 25? He said, oh, yeah, I killed 25. I said, I said, well, how many have you killed? He said, well, I don't know. I said, you killed 200? He said, oh, no, I ain't killed 200. You know? I never could pin him down, but it was a bunch of them. <laughs> but it, anyway, I said, well, I got a topo map. I said, I'd like to bring it out and maybe show me some areas that you don't hunt to give me a, a hint to check out this turkey season. He said, yeah, but he'd never seen a topo map before. <laughs> so I brought that topo out there, and he turned it around a couple of different places and got trying to figure it out. And I said, look, I said, this is this is highway such and such, and this is such and such. And he said, that's my house. <laughs> <laughs> he, he found his house on there. Boy, he called on. He said, you might. And we worked four days on and four days off. And, uh, <clears throat> excuse me. And uh, he said, you mind if I bring this home with me? And I said, no, not at all. He said, can I write on it? He said, you can do anything you want to with it. So we had a four days off. And when we come back for the four days on, <clears throat> Let me get some water. Excuse me. Mm-hmm. We come back after four days off. He said, "Here's your map," and I opened it up and it had red dots all over that thing. And I said, "What's these? What's these uh, dots for?" And he said, "Oh, that's turkeys." I said, "I said, each one of those dots is, is a turkey you kill." And he said, "No, that's places I kill turkeys." I said, oh, man. So anyway, that was the start of it. We got together. And I got him interested in bow hunting. He, he had bow hunted a few times earlier, but uh, it just started raining real hard. He had to pull that window down. But he had bow hunted, you know, a few years back with a, before the compounds got in or with a recurve. And he wasn't into it that much. And he got him interested in it and fired up. And we just took off from there. But always oh, a great hunting party. Very dependable. I, I stuck a gaff in my ankle one time. We were hunting together, and uh, I was—I put my spurs on, and I was walking. I never—it was a—it was a rule I had: never walk with my spurs on because you get tripped up, boy, and they can hurt you. And that's what happened. I—I I, I picked out a tree on a trail to climb and put my spurs on. And I, before I climbed, I didn't like it. And I saw another, thought it might be better, and I wound up going to three or four more different trees. And the last one I was going to, I. A stick caught my toes. I picked my foot up, and it made me do a hop step, and my my right uh, my right gaff come down in my left left uh, ankle there, and, and uh, it fractured my ankle. And uh, 
But anyway, I, I limped. I made a hunt and limped out, and I left all my stuff in there. I was planning on coming back the next day anyway and hunt. We were sleeping in our trucks, and uh, and they, I woke up about 2 o'clock in the morning. That thing swole up, and I couldn't hunt. And I, and I asked him. I woke him up about an hour earlier than what we planned on getting up. I said, you mind going to get my my, my uh, Alice pack and, and, and my stand and all? I'd left everything but my bow my video camera in the woods. And uh, he said, yeah, I'll, I'll go get it. So he, it was about a, a mile, a little over a mile where I'd stashed all that stuff. He walked in there and got it and brought it back to me and turned around and went right back in to make a hunt, you know, and, and uh, never thought nothing of it. But we've had we've had great times, had a lot of great stories, a lot of memories together. He's, he's an awesome, awesome person and an awesome hunter. And so did he have uh, like a, a similar amount of success to you? I mean, as far as like, you know, cause over 50 years, you know, when you say 380 some deer, it's, it's kind of overwhelming for guys that have killed, you know, a handful like, like myself, yeah. you know? Well, I had to get, a, I put it like this. He, he worked a lot of turnarounds and stuff as, as a pipe fitter, as a, excuse me, as a boiler maker. But I, I really appreciated like two or three week head start I got on him because he <laughs> it didn't take him long to catch me and pass me most of the time. <laughs> he, he's an awesome hunter. He's, he's one of the best woodsmen I've ever been in the woods with. He's just I can't say enough about it how good he is, and he's killed a lot, a lot of deer. And so, do you think having a hunting partner like that, like kept your drive up for hunting, or kept you motivated to go, or was it just you know you were just happy I, to have somebody along for the ride? No, absolutely. I, I owe a lot of my success to him. He he was relentless. Uh, we got another hunting partner, too, Carol Horn, down the coast of Mississippi. And Carol is, I, I could talk days about how good he is and what he's accomplished and did and everything. But uh, he describes Lord as relentless. They don't get too hard, don't get too hot, don't get too cold, don't get too far, don't get too wet. I mean, he's always ready. And he, you can depend on him. He's always going to be there. And he is a good, good hunter. I mean, I wouldn't want him hunting me at all. <laughs> I, I fig, figure out of the three of us, I'm, I was in the third place just trying to keep him being fifth place between three of us. <laughs> <laughs> so you had mentioned, you know, that you started, you know, you left all your stuff out there, but, but your video camera. So, you know, for all the guys out there that think that this, you know, running and gunning and self-filming and all that is is new or just been invented from YouTube and new technology. I mean, how long have you been taking a camera with you in the woods? My son got a video, my second son, he got a video camera to film the birth of his daughter and everything. And I borrowed it in 1991. And uh, we went on some preseason scouting. Me and Lloyd, I met Lloyd at the area up there. And uh, we, we went in with that video camera, and I had my limit and my spurs, and uh, I would climb a tree, and, and he sat on the ground and called with a with a deer, a, a fine and distress call. And then I videoed deer running in, and actually one of them run over the top of it, put a <laughs> hoof pun on his, on his head. I got that video on YouTube, I believe. And, and uh, But uh, we that first day, I think we walked, uh, made an eight-mile loop, and we called up about 20, 25 does and stuff. Like that. You don't call bucks in, but you call them does, they come running in there. It's fun to kind of get a, kind of check an area, see what kind of deer they got and stuff like that. We was doing that in, in uh, I believe it was August or September. It was late August or early September we were doing that, just checking the area out and everything. 
And I had so much fun with it. I enjoyed it. I ordered me a video camera for the 91 season. And I got it in. And the first October the 1st of 1991, I didn't have a way to, to a pedestal to hold it on my stand or nothing. I just had it slung around my shoulder, hanging there. And I, I, I shot a, a, a big eight-point in velvet. And I filmed him coming in. It was three bucks. I filmed all three of them coming in. And then the biggest one got right. And I'm... I realized that this deer is like 15 yards from me, all three of them 15 yards from me. And I got my camera up looking through a video camera. And I saw, I said, I need to kill this thing. So I put my camera down <laughs> and went ahead and shot him, you know, and found him. And, you know, but I started doing video show and tell. And I started the first year I, I just handheld. And then during that summertime, I figured out a way to make a monopod on my stand to mount it on there. And I started filming my shots and all that. And I did that for, say, 90 through 94, I believe. And that's be what, one or two, three, four years of that. And I had a whole bunch of footage, man. I had I don't know how many hours of footage. And I put a VHS video together, just real, real rough footage of all the stuff I had. And I started showing it to people, you know, and rolling it out. Man, I don't tell how many people have seen that thing. And they all, everybody started encouraging me to make a video. So by that time, I had like four years of video, and, and I got with uh, some guys in Jackson, Mississippi, that made that made videos. You know, that was, they, they had the studio and the whole thing, and I went in the studio with them, and we made a video called The Ultimate Challenge. And to my knowledge, it, it was released in 1995. That's when I started selling it and everything. And to my knowledge, it's the first video ever made for a commercial sale that the, the hunter and the video man was the same person. It was all self-filmed, <laughs> except for one one hunt. My son filmed him uh, shoot a deer, and I filmed him shoot it on there. But, but yeah, since 91, I got I got a season video ever, season since 91. I mean, plus it. I say that's just amazing. I mean, we're like I said, we're just sitting here like wide-eyed kids. I mean, you know. What do you, what's your oh, yeah. take on that, Frank? Because you were hunting, you know, same way, same style, same time frame. Totally amazed. <laughs> Just totally amazed, you know. How, how, I mean, as far as his records and everything is concerned, you know, and I mean, I've shot some deer, you know, but I never was that meticulous, you know what I mean? It was just like, I didn't record what I did, you know? Yeah. So... I don't know. It's 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 really awesome just to listen to to how he is so into the filming, the hunting, you know what I mean, everything, you know. It's really, really cool. Well, it's it's been fun. I try to encourage everybody, just like my uncle encouraged me to to just write it down, take notes and if you just get started on it it'll it'll improve and get better and you'll you're unlimited by your imagination, all the stuff you can write down and keep a record of. And like I say, even after doing it for all these years, I still, every year I come up with another. I say, well, I wonder how many of this or that, you know, and I go back to all the records and I'll figure out uh, the hours of the day that I killed deer. I mean, how many deer I killed between six o'clock and seven o'clock. I mean, between seven and eight, I figure all that up just, just for the fun of it, you know? And when I, when I come in from a hunt, First thing I do is I get in my little room here and get on the computer and I write all that stuff down about the hunt and update all the stats for that season. And it's just a 
labor of love, I guess. And then pictures, I try to take a lot of pictures. And uh, I don't know if you you check my Instagram. I've been having thankful to have a place to share some of that stuff and keep it for a record, another record-keeping place. And I just got lots and lots of pictures and hours and hours and hours of video, you know. <laughs> now, do I watch that stuff and read it all the time? No, I hardly ever do, but I got it. And it's fun to put it down whether I ever look at it again or not. Well, I just think, you know, for us even doing this podcast and, you know, and, you know, John is Frank's nephew. Frank is my father-in-law, you know, for the, the, the family aspect of it and for the, the legacy, right? It's something that we can always go back to and, and, you know, listen and recount and, you know, the videos that we have to, to rewatch. Um, and like, I, you know, Frank just kind of alluded to like thinking back on all of the, the stories that, that he has, you know, that aren't recorded or aren't on record. I mean, it's just amazing for, you know, really the podcast listener here is a whole nother um, level of that. But like for your family and for your legacy to be able to just to have all that, I think it's incredible. Yeah. Well, like I say, it's, it's fun. And, and uh, I, I enjoy it. Do I look forward to coming in from each hunt and getting on the computer and just, I got a little, form there that I change the stats, you know, for how many hunts I made, uh, like if I like I hunted this morning, you know, and I come in and at, at hunt for the year up to one and morning hunt up to one and I, how many deer I've seen up to how many I saw and it just, it just, it's an ongoing process, it just grows and grows and but you forget, I tell people, you know you can sure if you kill ten deer, you can remember another thing after after maybe ten or twelve seasons. But when you've been hunting for fifty seasons and you kill three hundred deer, you know you're gonna forget them. You ain't gonna be able to remember. But if you got pictures and you got a story written about it, you can go back there and and look at that picture and read that story, and it puts you right back in the moment. You can remember everything about it just like you was there a, a day ago instead of five year days five years ago or something. And it, it's it's a I tell you, I, I appreciate those deer, and I honor them by writing stories about them and, and being able to remember them like that. They didn't die for just nothing, you know. They died for the meat for my family and for the memories I have. And nothing excites me like a deer coming in. I mean, I, I just go to pieces sometimes. <laughs> I'm my worst own enemy, you know. Well, and that's one of the things that I really appreciate about, like, the way that you have approached hunting, I think I heard you say that, you know, nothing gets you more excited than killing deer. And fortunately you've had that feeling a lot, right? Right. <laughs> and so like for, for our guys, you know, when we, we talk on the podcast and we, a lot of it gets lost. And, you know, when we talk to these guys and we talk about hunting big bucks and, and everything, like I said, with social media, you know, everybody's killing huge deer because there's pictures out there but the the fun yeah. you know of i mean i think that that's why a lot of people gravitate towards bow hunting i know that that's why we like it is because it's so hard i've heard you say and we've said it on the podcast too that you know when guys say i could have killed that deer but i didn't <laughs> you know so many things yeah. can go wrong and, and that's you why don't we know love it so much right you don't know i that, 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 that really rips me when I hear people say, oh, I could have killed that by letting him go. You have no idea if you kill him until after you walk up to him, he's laying dead on the ground. <laughs> so many things can happen. 
Right. I'm gonna tell you a little story about what deer mean to me and everything. I think it was '73. I was I was hunting on the Mississippi River and and they had a, a big bend in the river. I mean, it, a huge a peninsula-looking bend in the Mississippi River, and it was basically all sandbar with willows and cottonwood trees. And uh, I, I, the acorns wasn't ready yet. It was early season, and and I've been walking myself to death trying to find a primary feed tree and hadn't done it. And I went out on that sandbar, and I couldn't believe how many deer tracks was out there. It was unbelievable. It's like I don't know what they was out there in that sand for and those willows and stuff, but they were there. And But they didn't have a tree big enough to hang a stand. And I, I don't like hunting on the ground or blinds or that like that. I like to have the advantage of being elevated. So I said, you know, I got to hunt out here. I got to make it happen. So I, I, I had my Bronco back in. It was, I take it was 74 because I didn't get my Bronco until 74. And, and uh, I took my Bronco and, and drove down where I found a cottonwood tree about the size of a telephone pole, diameter. And I took an axe and I cut that thing down and I cut it 25 foot long. And I tied it on my Bronco and I pulled it around, out, went out on the sandbar, locked my hubs in, went out on that big sandbar up in them willows and stuff and found a good little place. And I stopped and I Went back to the camp. There was a group. It was, I was hunting in a club, and they had two or three camps around. I found somebody had an old shovel back by the camp. I got that shovel, and I went back, and I dug a hole in that sand. And uh, I dug it. Had had to go down about waist high on me to get to hard clay, which is about I don't know three four foot something like that. And uh, and once I got that, I had a, I had the hole was probably five six foot in diameter because the sand kept caving in. Had a, had a gigantic hole right there. And I went and got a hunting buddy, and he helped me pick the little end of that pole up and put it on the rack on my Bronco. I had a rack up there and put it on that and then put the base of a, the, the pole. It's now a pole. It's not a tree anymore now. I put the base at the hole, and I backed up, and he guided it and dropped it, dropped down in that hole. And it was put some sand in there, and I went out on the gravel road and shoveled up some gravel and put it in a tarp, come back and mix his gravel in there to give it a good base packed it all down now i had a tree to hunt so i i climbed up there uh, oh charlie told me he said you're gonna look naked up there on that tree you ain't got nothing but a pole up there they're gonna see you and i said well let me do this so i cut a willow tree limb and climbed up there with my spurs and, and uh and tied that willow tree on that pole you know and i said that'll hide me so anyway that that that, that i didn't hunt it that evening but the next evening i did i went there and set up and everything and i i killed a spike and uh, some, I told that story to somebody or something. I said, you mean you went to all that work to kill a spike? I said, yeah, but I'd have done it for a dope. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, it don't make any difference. It's, you see something and you make up your mind you want to kill it. It don't make any difference. It's a 10 point or it's a dope. You, you carry out and, and do what you wanted to do. So, Warren, now, when they're out on that mud flat out there, them deer, uh huh, was he eating catfish? <laughs> no, no it, was, it was actually a sand boy it was it was uh, sand and everything no but i don't I, I don't know what they're i guess they're eating them willows they uh, probably were willow leaves and everything, but they were out there yeah so now you say you live in baton rouge i, I live uh north of baton rouge about 30 miles yeah 25 miles something like that a little town uh, south uh southeast of a little town called clinton it's okay. a it's a parish seat we were uh, we were down there. Adam's uh, mom and dad were down there with uh, my wife and I uh, two years ago. I think it was. Oh, really? We, we were on the we did a, a cruise on the Mississippi down there from 
uh, New Orleans all the way up, you know. Uh, okay, on one of those riverboats? Yeah, yeah. I'll be darned. And we stopped in Baton Rouge. That's the first time I'd ever been on the Mississippi down in there. Yeah, and, uh, it's pretty big down here. Oh, man. But looked like a lot of good hunting down there. It is. It is now. Yeah, they, they have some good hunting. But it looked like a lot, what, of, what, what, a lot of clubs and stuff, though, right? Yeah. What state? Yeah. What state are y'all from? Michigan. 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 Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. You said you had done some electrical work up here, right? Yeah, I worked in uh, Detroit, and uh, and uh, you, yeah, you, you know uh, Tom Nelson, huh? I'm sure. No of him. Yep. Yeah. Well, anyway, he came down and made a hunt with us at that that forty-two thousand acre uh, place I was talking about, and I wrote a. At the time, he was contracted by Bowhunter Magazine for, mm-hmm. I think, five or six articles a year. And he came down and made a, a January hunt with us. And and, uh, and the, the river was in flood stage, and we was having to go in by boats. It was quite an ordeal and everything. And uh, well, I have some good memories about him coming down. <laughs> he was he was real young then. This was in 82, I guess. Oh. Yeah, 82. And he was a young fellow then. I think he killed his 20th year with us on that trip. So, like I said, uh, when I was talking back and forth with you, uh, like, you know, we could do story time uh, the whole time. Um, we talk about, like, dedication, the lengths you'll go through. I, I remember hearing you talk about killing a deer and having to ride it home on a motorcycle. <laughs> <laughs> well, I rode it back to the camp. It wasn't home. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I had a little, uh, uh, I used to ride them. Uh, what the heck? I forget what the, enduro races and stuff like that. And I had a Yamaha 250, and and I I had it it was the terrain wasn't real good and everything. And I, I I killed this deer, and anyway I went got I got a picture of it across across the motorcycle or something other. It's just urine. I shot it the evening before and didn't find it till the next day. I think that was my second bow kill ever or something like that. It was quite interesting. <laughs> So you didn't repeat that method of getting it no, out that, that was way? A, as a one time, done and done. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. So for guys that are just starting out, you said that was your second ever bow kill. For for guys that maybe haven't killed a deer with their bow or, you know, haven't killed a buck with their bow, um, what advice would you have for them starting out, you know, given all of your experience, but then kind of the way that things are today with you know the hunting world well i don't know it's just uh you need you know a lot of guys like you mentioned before they worry about trophy hunting and killing big bucks and all that you got to learn how to kill deer before you can be concerned with that because the the excitement of just having a doe come in once you make up your mind to kill it it, it just the emotional factor involved with another thing you'd never be able to hand, handle it with a with a real trophy deer come in if you hadn't done it with a bunch of other deer before you got you gotta you gotta it's just like getting out of high school and going to the pros and playing ball you know you gotta you gotta do some college first and, and you gotta get your feet on the ground and get get the feel for it and get used to what it takes to do what you want to do before you start doing it and killing just regular deer a lot of people might look down their nose at you know that's that's, that's what's going to do it for you Got to build up your confidence factor. Confidence is a huge thing, and and archery kills. And so, for that that confidence thing, just kind of goes into one of the other questions I had 
for you was the, you know, when you were coming up and you said that you're doing these, you know, two mile in, two mile out with, you know, no GPSs at the time, no, you know, how, how were you getting back to the truck? I mean, like, <laughs> you know, because like, I think, you know, after dark, I mean, I've, everybody's experienced it, you know, if you don't have a good light or a good idea of where you're at, you know, everything somewhat looks the same. And, you know, for anybody that's really actually been, you know, two miles deep or even a mile deep somewhere, you know, it, 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 uh, I mean, I'll say it flat out. It's extremely intimidating, even with like today's, you know, things without, you know, logging roads and, and things like that. Yeah. Well, it, it's not easy, and I wondered about that myself a lot. <laughs> <laughs> but as paying attention, I always had a compass in my hand, and I was aware of where I come from and, and basically where I wanted to go. And every time I'd make a cut, I'd do a mental check in my mind of what, how I was going to have to compensate for that with a different bearing when I was coming back. But And then you use a lot of landmarks, too. You know, you got you got creeks and you got field edges. You got logging roads. It's a, it's a lot of little different landmarks you can look for and learn to it. But, uh, you know, my son, he, he mentions that too. He, just, he said, I don't know how y'all did that, Daddy, because he's real big on the technology now. And he's got the apps with the phones and all that. And I do too now. I, I, I got a GPS kit. It's an it's a iPhone app. It's, I really like and use a lot. But when I was hunting, I always had a compass and I always used topo maps. And if I, if I hunted somewhere I'd never hunted before with a friend or something, I would get a piece of paper and get them to draw out how their land laid out and where the creeks was and the pastures and the overview. And then, I, like I said, I had topo maps that I, I used. I'd make copies of to bring with me. And uh, just stay be aware of where you're going. Which I, as an electrician, I always thought, I said, you know, it would be great if you had a transmitter that you could set on your dash of your, of your vehicle and plug it in a cigarette lighter and be sending a signal and then you have a receiver in your pocket was like a compass and have a needle on it pointed at that transmitted location i said well if they ever come up with something like that that would be the thing you know and then i think it was 1998 or 99 they come out with the gps and uh i bought one of the first thing first ones i could get man i said this has got to be what i was talking about it shows you where you're at and where you've been and where you're going you know <laughs> and i got that thing i fell in love with it boy it just it was, it was the greatest thing but i still use my compass a lot i use that compass for a lot of stuff i use to find deer with uh check my my tree up climb with in regards to the wind conditions and look in directions I, I use that compass a lot help find deer I found most of my deer with a compass instead of blood. Blood's a last resort for me. I shoot a deer. I watch where he's going. And uh, usually they'll, they'll run pretty straight or they'll try to curve back where they come from because they were safe there. And I'll, I'll walk in bearing out, look for them, and run a few bearings. before I even, And if that fails, I'll go back and then have to do blood. But uh, that compass, man, that's, that's a great tool. I won't, go, I won't go in the woods without it, even my backyard. And so now when you're... Um hunting these like smaller properties and not having, I mean, I would imagine that you're not having to use so much technology on, you know, small acre properties like that. How has that changed the way that you're, you're hunting? 
I mean, are you looking at, so are you looking at the weather and the wind now and saying, well, I got to hunt this property in this stand area? Or, I mean, how, how has that changed the, the mindset going into each hunt? Oh, it's, it's huge. I always aware of the wind direction and what areas has proved itself in certain wind directions and stuff like that. Yes, that's important. The wind is everything. But sometimes they say it's going to be one way and you get there and it's totally different what you expected, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can't depend on it, but you got to have something to start with anyway, you know. That weatherman, he gets paid either way. <laughs> that's right <laughs> yeah and all that percentage stuff you know that's, that's just right. the way it saved his eye <laughs> well we said it was going to be 40 percent. you know that's almost 50 yeah. so I've, I've, I've missed out on a lot of hunting because i listened to that weather and thought i was going to get wet you know and it don't even rain <laughs> yeah. thing is you gotta go you gotta go that's it you? that's it you yeah. can't kill them at the house that's right the old boy told me one time he said you ain't gonna kill them on the couch you know that's right that's it. That's the deal. Well, you know, I really appreciate, you know, you sitting down and, and, and talking with us tonight. I mean, like I said, I've, I've listened to just about everything that you've had out and, uh, you know, watched all the stuff on, on YouTube. And I just think, you know, one of the things that's, that's lost in this new, uh, era, I mean, of the generations and everything of, it gets, you know, everybody who, as soon as another generation comes, they, I mean, it's like in the military, you know, they say, well, I had it harder than you guys and these new guys, and, <laughs> you know, I mean, that's, it's just something that, that you deal with, right? You know, I was in the yeah. Marine, so everything is old core, you know, well, when I was in, when I was in, when I was in, but I think that, you know, you and your, your hunting partners and, and all, I mean, in, in, in Frank as well, I mean, we, we're, we're blessed to have you know, Frank and his stories and experience, but you know, you're, you would be the guy at the coffee shop with the camouflage bow hunting hat on or something. And, you know, you don't know what those guys have seen and, and have uh, all the experience and all the knowledge that they have to share. And I just really appreciate you doing that because, you know, I reached out to Warren to try and come on the, the vitals. We had some people that wanted to, to see you you know, and, and sit down with you and answer the questions. And it's just a technology jump. Um, and yeah. so for you to do, you know, be on podcasts and put your stuff on YouTube and, and share your experiences. Um, you know, I think that that's invaluable for the, the generations up and coming. Right. Well, you know, I, I, I said it before, I, I would never tell anybody how they should hunt, but I tell them how I hunted, what was successful for me. And, you know, I, I can't hunt like I used to when I was in my prime, but, you know, you got a lot of a lot of real professional people that were really good at what they did at one time, and they can't do it as good now either. <laughs> so, so you know, Father Time really changes things. But, uh, I, yeah, I've always enjoyed sharing. I, I, I don't mind sharing at all. Well, awesome. So where can people follow along with, you know, your – youtube and your your instagram and if they if they want to track down that video how how do they do that uh well the video bits and pieces of it's on my youtube some of the kills and stuff i'm thinking about putting the whole thing on there but i just hadn't made the commitment but it's old you know it was released in uh 95 i sold that thing up until two years ago and i got so embarrassed about selling it because it was so old and everything i just 
it got to be more troubling to work to me, but it's really not available right now other than a few kills on my YouTube 2 channel showing up. But as far as uh, the social media, I'm just Warren Womack. Uh, Warren Womack on Facebook, Warren Womack on Instagram, and Warren Womack on uh, YouTube. So that's pretty much it. Well, I, you know, I just really appreciate it. And uh, I think that's all we kind of are going to ask for you tonight. If you just want to stay on the line here, I'll stop. Well, I, I'm, I'm very flattered for the opportunity to talk with you. I, I enjoy talking about this stuff. And uh, hopefully somebody might find one or two things in it might help them out. Well, thank you again.